Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and in some cases, slightly late evening from where you're joining. Uh, I really extend a very warm welcome to each one of you, to the eminent speakers, and to a host of engaged participants online on behalf of India Initiative on Climate Risks and Sustainable Finance, which is anchored by Climate Bonds Initiative, ODI, and Octus ESG. Uh, what I will do today is, my name is Neha Kumar, first of all, let me just introduce myself. Um, I will, in the opening uh, two or three minutes, will uh, set the context for our conversation today and will also tell you how we would like to proceed with our conversation. Uh, first of all, um, all the speakers over here, I think, are very, very warm welcome and also our gratitude for making the time. Uh, the proposition, as we call it today, is that it is it time to recognize and empower the national development banks in their role to support green transition in G20 and beyond. And I think it couldn't be a better moment, more opportune timing to discuss this issue. Um, to set the context from my end, I think it is pretty straightforward and might I say even dire. The dire is a very important word given the urgency at which we have to uh, calibrate, structure, and really um, accelerate uh, green transition uh, in the midst of multiple and simultaneous ecological and economic crises that we are facing. Um, if it was not, uh, you know, everybody has been speaking about it at different fora. The G20 presidency uh, held by India and now going over to Brazil uh, in its Delhi declaration made a very, very emphatic case uh, for transformative investments, for bigger, bolder and better action on SDGs uh, by 2030, for meeting the Paris targets, and really, uh, you know, converting our pledges into action. And when we talk about that, I think uh, the case for emerging economies becomes extremely central. Uh, we need, you know, our paper also uh, looks at that. And I will invite my colleague later on who will open uh, the conversation with her findings and really the argument that why alongside the multi-development banks, which need to play an immensely important role in this agenda, why national development banks are a key player and perhaps um, relatively unrecognized and underutilized given the role and the direct role they play in um, um, you know, uh, originating, intermediating finance for where it is uh, directly required. Um, when we talk about this uh, today, we will also use green transition in a broader sense of the term. Uh, that should include not only mitigation, but adaptation, resilience, and even wider social benefits that should accrue to people as a result of this transition. Uh, how we will structure our conversation today, it is going to be in three segments. The first one is an opening segment, and I will uh, invite um, our colleague, Mr. Aman Gur from Ministry of Finance to give his opening remarks. 
then I will go over to Samantha Artridge, Senior Fellow at ODI, to uh, give the context setting um, remarks in the first 10 minutes. And then we will get into the uh, meat of the discussion and we have uh, a fantastic lineup of speakers. We thought it was absolutely important and also uh, very opportune to get India, uh, Brazil, South Africa, Finance in Common, um, ADB, you know, um, all of us in the, in the same room to start actually talking more about uh, where the gaps are, what needs to be done, uh, where the cooperation uh, matrix lies and what can be achieved in short term and to medium term. So we have also um, IFC over here. We have lead discussions from um, uh, think tanks like LSE Grantham Institute, uh, Octus ESG, um, uh, NIPFP, uh, who will weigh in on the proposition uh, and also add, uh, I would invite them to add uh, their perspective. So there will be a session on concessional finance because I think it is extremely important to recognize that more of it, more of concessional finance will be required uh, to de-risk investments, to uh, take into various accounts, uh, to, to take into account various uh, aspects not only from the de-risking point of view, but perhaps also very, very importantly, from the technical assistance point of view, from advisory point of view, because finance alone is not going to solve the problem, even though it is the part of the solution. So how is it fit for purpose in the era that we are entering in? So without much ado, I will now invite Aman to uh, uh, set us off with his opening remarks. Good afternoon, dear friends from India. It's a great privilege for me to participate today in this very relevant discussion on the role of NDBs to support the green transition. Friends, as we all know, the need for financing of infrastructure is ever increasing. According to the World Bank, addressing the infrastructure challenge alone would require 1.5 trillion US dollars in investment through 2030. However, we all know that the capacities of governments across the world and especially in the developing world is becoming more and more rigid and tightened due to the monetary policy restrictions. In this context, the national development banks could be potential instruments to act as a dedicated and specialized institution focusing on addressing the long-term infrastructure financing needs of the developing and emerging economies. NDBs have an important role to allocate resources in line with the development priorities and international commitments of the respective countries. In India, we have created NAPFID with a crucial role in driving the development of the bond market, the loans market, and derivatives for the long-term infrastructure financing. As all of you must be aware, India is committed to reduce emissions intensity of its GDP by 45% 
by 2030 in order to achieve its long-term goal of reaching net zero by 2070. In this direction, we have taken many steps. Prominent among those steps is the launching of the Sovereign Green Bonds Framework, whereby we raised $2 billion in the first tranche. The proceeds were utilized mainly for renewable energy and mass urban transit sectors. This year also, we are coming out with a bigger tranche of sovereign green bonds, renewing our commitment towards net zero. In this direction, as a leading DFI, NAFID can further support in promotion of Sustainable Development Agenda 2023 and embed into India's nationally determined contribution and sustainability goals. Friends, NDBs can de-risk private investment and create a more balanced public-private mix in sustainable infrastructure development. They can create blending instruments and co-financing opportunities to plug the investment gap for achieving sustainable development. The NDBs have a very important role in crowding in private capital by offering incentives such as partial credit guarantees and by developing innovative products in syndication with private banks that could facilitate access to capital markets such as green bonds, sustainability linked bonds and transition bonds aiming at climate mitigation and resilience. NDBs are in a particularly important position in their respective countries because they understand the barriers to investments and can relate to the challenges faced by the local private sector and are in a position to address their concerns in light of the local regulations and market ecologies. They can also provide the private sector with incentives to take more responsibility for operations and maintenance of long-term finance for infrastructure projects and can develop approaches towards takeout financing or robust service level agreements in the structuring of public-private partnerships. Through various risk mitigating and transaction enabling interventions, NDBs can leverage private capital and create new markets for supporting the economic growth and social development of the emerging countries. They play a key role in ensuring long-term sustainable financing, which should be available for infrastructure development. I rest here and I look forward to the insightful discussions happening today. Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, thank you, Oman. And I think you've outlined exactly the key points that we will touch upon. Uh, and I think what is 
very good is that we have people who have been practicing some of these things, some of these solutions, and we'll have a lot of examples uh, that will come forth during our discussion. Thank you so much for your opening remarks. I will now move over to Samantha to um, do her presentation and set us forth. Thank you, Neha. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Um, great pleasure to be here. So I'm going to um, make some remarks to set the scene. Um, although uh, Mr. Mann, I think, has done a good job for me already, so I can skip through some of um, my points. Um, so I'm going to recently, in, in um, July, we published this paper, ODI, it's called National Development Bank's Building Markets for a Net Zero World. So I'm kind of, my remarks are going to be based on that paper. You can just look me up on the ODI website and, and find out more of the detail. So I'm going to make um, four points. Um, so the first point, and that is that national development banks have really kind of been overlooked in the international policy discussions, but are critical players, and hence kind of the finance and common movement. So we'll hear about that later, um, and the discussion um, today. Uh, we've heard about you know kind of this urgent fundamental need to transform to low carbon, climate resilient economies. At the centre of that will be the development, transforming energy systems and, and clean energy, and the need to kind of mobilise private finance to, in order to do that. Stepping back a bit at the international level, you know, everyone's probably heard of this billions to trillions agenda. And so we've pitched, we've pitched great hopes on this kind of billions to trillions agenda. And, you know, I think it's pretty much to date have been a failed agenda when you actually look at the sums that have been mobilized. And here I want to make two points. One is I think that in the international discussions and our thinking, we have an overemphasis on mobilizing cross-border kind of institutional capital, if you like, from advanced economies to EMDEs. And I, I, that means emerging market developing economies. I, I use the phrase EMDE going forward. Um, and an underemphasis on actually the local pools of capital in these markets and local capital market development, which I think is critical because one of the barriers which I talk about is a very high cost of capital. And so we need to look at how do we bring down the cost of capital in these markets? And the answer has to be the development of local capital markets in the long term. Um, so I think this is really important, it's underemphasized, and this is where I think then really kind of national development banks and why we need to kind of, if you like, bring them in from the sidelines and shine the light on their role. Um, this is where I come from. So I just wanted to show, um, I'm not doing a slide presentation, I just, I'm, I'm gonna show you some graphs. Um, which hopefully um, will illustrate some of the points that I that I want to want to make. So, firstly, as I say, kind of, I, you know, I think these banks have been neglected in in these um, discussions, and I think this is a mistake. As you can see, hopefully, you can all um, share my screen. Neha, if you can't see it, let me know. Um, this is a, this is a, a big oversight because um, what this um, these graphs show is that actually national development finance institutions, national development banks are actually the largest um, provider of mitigation finance and the second largest provider of adaptation finance. But as I say, they're quite often absent from these big international uh, discussions. And you can see that the mitigation flows from NDB, national development banks, 
actually triple those from multilateral development banks and dwarf the multilateral kind of climate funds. Um, I'll talk a bit about their role in a second, which Mr. Aman has, has spoken about. But I, what I wanted to really emphasize here again is this point about mobilizing local capital and developing local capital markets. And I think this is really important because of that minuscule allocation that we've seen, if you like, in institutional portfolios in advanced economies. Their allocation is highly concentrated in a few markets in emerging economies. So I think we have to look to domestic markets for this. Also, I think there's a very big issue around Forex risk and development of local capital markets can help kind of address this. So that's my first point, critical role, but overlooked. So my second point is, is kind of the role, and I think some of this has already been articulated, so I'm gonna whip through this. Um, and I'm gonna really focus on mobilization. I'm gonna focus around the transformation of uh, energy systems and renewable energy. And Niha, I took your steer that this is a broader conversation, but my paper's specifically looking at scaling renewable energy. So I think there are three main issues which really challenge this agenda at the country level. And national development banks, given their development mandate and often their financing model, are well-placed to overcome these. So what are they? There are three things. One is very high cost of capital. I've spoken about that. Often renewable energy, very large upfront investment with very long payback. So you need long-term affordable finance. And quite often, given the state of local capital markets, that's not available. Uh, so cue kind of national development banks who are able to provide affordable patient capital. So high cost capital two, an uncommercial risk adjusted rate of return. We need kind of competitive risk adjusted rates of return. And what, what creates this? A vast array of risks from policy, kind of regulatory, macroeconomic, technological credit risk and so forth. Many, many risks which can um, kind of affect these kind of risk adjusted rates of return. And so national development banks can deploy what we call risk capital to kind of take that risk and adjust that calculation for the private investor. And then the third issue is a lack of investable pipeline for these kind of projects, which is different from kind of corporates. It's about the investable pipeline. And many national development banks have quite large development facilities and are well placed to do this. Now, some might say, well, all these arguments also the same for multilateral development banks. So why are we interested in national development banks? And I think, again, Mr. Imam touched on this, and that is they are, have unrivaled local knowledge, deeply rooted in national context, which I think they are very well placed, if not better, to price risk and originate opportunity. And I think this is what we must we must recognize. So my, my third point, in the paper, we identify four mo mobilization roles. So the first is as a mobilizer. And I think traditionally national development banks have kind of been public financiers of, of investment, but this is shifting as we're seeing at the international level of focus on mobilization of private finance, we're seeing a shift if you like, with the mandates of national development banks and DBSA here on this event in 2016, for example, have issued actually a KPIs based on mobilization, which sits actually above KPIs on, on disbursement, which many banks kind of like have. Um, and the paper kind of touches on, I think, three approaches, which I think have quite large potential to mobilize scale. 
One is a kind of a pooled portfolio approach. We might hear a bit more about that from BMDS today. It's not particularly common, but I think it's a, a really important approach and I look forward to hearing more about that. The second is kind of loan syndication, which is very common amongst national development banks. It's predominantly used to finance large renewable energy infrastructure. And it's actually very, very good at mobilizing local investment especially while those capital markets aren't so well developed. I want to, I wanted to focus my um, attention on today is green bonds. Um, so this kind of leveraging of NDB balance sheets, green leveraging of NDB balance sheets, I think has two benefits, which is why we're interested in it. One is it can, and we heard about constrained fiscal positions, if you like. Um, so subject certain limits, this enables the bank to leverage its balance sheet and scale up its investment capacity without, if you like, equity injection or fiscal transfer. So that's why we're interested in it. Two, again, this issue around mobilizing local capital and holding the hands of kind of local investors who hitherto haven't really kind of engaged in this kind of um, investment. What this graph shows is you can see from a zero base in 2014 that national development banks, you see a, a kind of quite a rapid growth in issuance and green banks. And what we actually see, you know, it's catching up in 2022. And actually, when you look at the average issuance size in the last two years, it's actually, um, I think, kind of at least doubled and it's much larger than the issuance size in advanced economies. And what this is telling us is that these markets are growing very, very fast in these um, economies. And again, just picking up here why we're interested in green bond issuance. I say many national development banks that we've studied have played a pioneering role. They are quite often the first issuer in the country. And then that paves the way for other issuers uh, to issue after the development bank has, has done, has the benefits of capital market development, reducing forex risk for the development bank and is mobilizing local currency investment in renewable energies. And I think we also touched on a new development, sustainability linked bonds. Again, very, very new, not many doing this at the moment. PTSMI, who unfortunately couldn't be here, which is the Indonesian uh, development bank, are pioneering this They're on a roadshow for a half a billion uh, sustainability linked bond, which will link to some internal KPIs, which is quite interesting. The um, third role, or second role, then, so the mobilizers, um, I've spoken about some approaches, and then we've got pipeline development, absolutely critical. We hear about this, this barrier, local commercial banks either don't have the expertise or the funding to finance that, few national development banks who have project development facilities. What's really important here to note is that many of these facilities some of them are funded by government, but the vast majority are actually funded by international capital, concessional capital, climate capital, by donors, etc. Then I want to move on to the third role, which is this kind of blenders of concessional finance. As I said, actually, concessional finance has a critical role to overcome the challenges which I outlined briefly. It can reduce capital cost, it can adjust the risk-adjusted rate of return, and it can fund um, project development. And we see one, one area, again, I wanted to highlight here, which I love quoting and talking about, and I urge you to look at, is SDG Indonesia One, which is a 3.2 billion blended finance facility managed by the Indonesian Development Bank, PTSMI. Um, and what I wanted to highlight here 
is why it's different. It has four facilities. One is development, kind of project development, and it's the largest facility. It's kind of something like 2.4 of the 3.2 billion. It's all about developing the pipeline. Then you have an allocation for de-risking, debt financing, and equity financing. But what's interesting about this is that the money is pulled at the country level, at the country platform level. So it comes in uh, and the bank kind of has an overview and purview of all of this and can decide how it deploys it. And I think that's quite unusual because much blended finance has been happening at the transaction level by lots of different players. But in this example, the bank is actually, you know, very strategically deploying this, this capital. Um, the second interesting point about this is that it blends a, a vast array of different kinds of capital from donors, from multilaterals, from the international climate funds, actually commercial capital, commercial banks in there. We've got institutional investors in there. So again, showing kind of the possibilities. And I haven't got time to talk about it, but there is also the clean reduction fund part of the ETM of the JetP there. I just realized I've just spoken a whole load of acronyms there. But basically it's a, a clean and a, um, a blended finance fund to retire coal plants early to refinance them. Uh, final role, uh, policy influences. So I've spoken a lot about the financial role of uh, these national development banks, but they have a very important non-financial role, and that is shaping broad and specific policy frameworks which can incentivize private investment. Um, and it's a critical issue because quite often it's, it's kind of policy and regulatory issues which may frustrate uh, private investment. Um, and we see really good examples, we might hear a bit about that say from DBSA, for example, who worked on the development, I've got this written down so I can rem remember it, the Renewable Energy Independent Power Producers Programme. And they've also been uh, quite integral in kind of contributing to South Africa's integrated resource plan. So not just a financial role, but actually a kind of a non-financial role. And then my final point, or my fourth point and final point, access to concessional finance and what we're going to talk about in the next segment. Absolutely critical, as I've said, for, for three reasons. Um, the problem is, is that many of these banks, some of them do get allocations from government to do this, but they rely enormously on the international climate funds to, to have access to this capital. And the problem is, is that it's largely bypassing this institu these institutions. So we've got this nice graph here, which I'll leave up for you to, to digest. So the problem is, is that these institutions who are very well placed, as I said, to price risk, to originate investment opportunity, don't really access this resource. I'm focusing on the Green Climate Fund here because it's it's unique in that one of its mandates is to, pr to promote and prioritise country ownership. But what this figure shows you is that nearly 91% of it has been captured by the international system. And what do I mean here? Multilaterals, regionals, for example, international organisations like the UN. And then you see this huge issue with disbursement. So 91% captured by the international system, and yet 70% of it is undispersed. So this money isn't doing anything kind of like at the moment, and it's not going to national entities and it's not going to national development banks. And then the second issue with this, and then I'm going to uh, finish, is that all of this is dispersed in hard currency, which seems a bit of an issue for me. So anyway, I haven't got time to go into the Green Climate Fund, but I think 
this issue around accessing concessional capital and those who are very well placed to intermediate it look to Indonesia at that kind of country pooling platform, which I think is a great idea. Um, we need to be thinking about that. So I'm going to stop there. Sorry, it's a bit of a, a whistle top, uh, whistle stop tour, but thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sam, for this. Uh, I think it was incredibly uh, instructive presentation and I would uh, really, you know, like to move to Mr. Rai now, uh, having heard the presentation itself and now you leading the charge at NAFID with which has a mandate uh, of, of uh, you know, on green finance as well. So uh, being the newest one on the block within India and within this room, uh, what exactly do you see as uh, the big obstacles and opportunity? We did hear that there is an opportunity. The world seems to be awash with capital and yet it, it doesn't seem to be reaching its destination. So uh, just your thoughts on where do you see the big opportunity as well as obstacles uh, in, in addressing and in actually getting more finance at scale to flow to green projects. Thank you, Ms. Neha. Uh, first of all, uh, I, let me introduce myself uh, because I'm new to this setup. I'm Rajkiran Rai. Presently managing director of uh, NAFID, uh, a new entity created by the government of India uh, for particularly to meet these infrastructure financing needs and uh, other developmental goals. Um, actually, it's very interesting that uh, uh, you invited me to participate in these uh, discussions because we are trying to understand uh, what is the international scenario and how this is playing out. And India offers a lot of opportunities uh, that way, which I'll try to, uh, in, a, uh, in a way, present to this audience now. Uh, what are the opportunities available? What are the challenges we are facing? But then India is definitely one of the biggest countries which can consume a lot of this finance because there is a lot of action here, a lot of groundwork is being done. So with that, actually, I will go to introduce uh, briefly what is NAFID. Uh, so this is a infrastructure-focused DFI established in pursuance of the announcement uh, made in the Union Budget of 2021-22 to support the development of long-term infrastructure financing in India. NAFID has both financing and developmental objectives, and under the developmental objective, objectives, among others, NAFID has been engaging with various stakeholders in the area of infrastructure to support the development of long-term non-recourse infrastructure financing in India, including the domestic bonds and derivative markets. Our focus, actually, particularly related to today's discussion, is understanding and managing climate risk, which will become critical for infrastructure activities, and ensuring fundraising at the right cost, and also financing and refinancing of the green portfolio at a cheaper rate. These are the main focus, particularly related to today's discussion. So uh, like I now would like to connect to the G20 and the discussions we had in that context. So India's G20 presidency concluded sustainable finance discussions with a sharp focus on the global south. Some of the recommendations of the Indian presidency for DFIs and MDBs on mobilizing more private capital include raising awareness of blended finance mechanisms for climate investments, sharing best practices 
building expertise, identifying barriers, and seeking to address the distinct needs of the sector, sectors and geographies for scaling up blended finance for climate investments across public and private sectors, as well as for developing bankable projects for adaptation. Against this backdrop and the massive financing needs in emerging market and developing economies, this roundtable assumes significance with respect to blended finance as a means to crowd in the much needed private capital for the green transition and the urgent need for the NDBs to exchange and collaborate among themselves to advance the solutions to current challenges in green finance. So in India, the opportunities uh, emerge from the pipeline, what is called National Infrastructure Pipeline. So this is uh, started uh, by the, as a central government initiative. The NIP for 2019 to 25 is a first of its kind whole of government exercise to provide world-class infrastructure to citizens and improving their quality of life. It aims to improve project preparation and attract investments into infrastructure. The NIP has been made on a best effort basis by aggregating the information provided by various stakeholders, including the ministries, departments, state governments, and private sector across infrastructure subsectors as identified in the harmonious list of infrastructure subsectors. All projects, greenfield or brownfield, under conceptualization or under implementation or under development of project cost greater than 100 crores, which is US dollar 12 million per project, were sought to be captured. Now, there are 9,467 projects amounting to 1.9 trillion US dollars uh, listed under the National Infrastructure Pipeline, which amounts to 161 lakh crores in Indian rupees or 1.9 trillion US dollars. This is the pipeline which is listed in the National Infrastructure Pipeline, which offers that much opportunity for the investment. So we did a green review. Uh, uh, NAFID, uh, with the support of climate bonds and FCDO along with the DEA, made an attempt for assessing NIP's green portfolio and the pipeline a few months back. Broadly, 20%, that is about 389 billion US dollars or 32 lakh crores of Indian rupees is automatically compatible with the climate bonds criteria. However, 46%, that is about US dollar 894 billion or 74 lakh crores of Indian rupees is potentially compatible if further information is made available to demonstrate alignment with the climate bond screening indicators. That means two-thirds of national infrastructure pipeline may be falling into the category where these investments can flow. Another, now this is the potential where the money can come in, the investments can come in in various ways. So challenge in front of in front of us is still in, is yet to come out with the green tax economy. So this is one of the challenges we face, particularly for the international uh, funds flow to happen. The taxonomies have spread across number of countries in every continent. Nearly 30 countries have either developed or developing taxonomies, as well as regions like ASEAN and the European Union. Some examples of country taxonomies include Colombia, South Africa, Chile, 
ಚೈನಾ ರಷ್ಯಾ ಜಪಾನ್ ಮಂಗೋಲಿಯಾ ಮಲೇಷ್ಯಾ ಸಿಂಗಾಪುರ್ ಸೌತ್ ಕೊರಿಯಾ ಬಾಂಗ್ಲಾದೇಶ್ ಇಂಡೋನೇಷ್ಯಾ ಎಕ್ಸೆಟ್ರಾ ಇನ್ ಇಂಡಿಯಾ ಮಿನಿಸ್ಟ್ರಿ ಆಫ್ ಫೈನಾನ್ಸ್ ಹ್ಯಾಸ್ ಡ್ರಾಫ್ಟೆಡ್ ಸಸ್ಟೈನಬಲ್ ಫೈನಾನ್ಸ್ ಟ್ಯಾಕ್ಸಾನಮಿ ಬಟ್ ಇಸ್ ಇಟ್ ಹ್ಯಾಸ್ ನಾಟ್ ಎಟ್ ರಿಲೀಸ್ basically there are discussions going on with the various stakeholders while discussions is currently going on green taxonomy discussions can be further held on the need to go beyond green to cover areas such as sustainable and climate finance and maybe to consider gss which is green social and sustainability taxonomy is a period of high growth in a country like india we should not be end up with shortage of energy or as necessary scaling up of renewable capacity will take time and so there is a need to take a balanced view on the conventional energy also hence taxonomy for transition may also be suitably considered even with a sunset clause for validity the blended finance is what we are discussing today actually as a support like this another uh, challenge we face the lack of blended finance even though india is quite ahead in issuing green bonds and trying to ensure utilization of uh, these uh, funds raised particularly for the the sectors which are green so in, this is the biggest challenge for most of the emerging economies actually to mobilize adequate monetary resources to achieve climate mitigation and adaptation targets as per estimates india's long term low emission development strategy india needs tens of billions of dollars by 2050 to ultimately achieve net zero status by 2070 also based on updated ndc india's adaptation finance requirements stand at around 1 trillion by dollar 1 trillion by 2030 public funding of this magnitude could be difficult to allocate especially because of the need to root limited public funds towards immediate social priorities and contingencies so blended concessional finance or blended finance combines concessional finance from donors or third parties alongside dfis normal own account finance and all commercial finance from other investors to develop private sector markets address the sdgs and mobilize private resources collaboration between public private and philanthropic capital is critical for unlocking development gains and addressing massive global challenges such as climate change the blended finance has the potential to be a catalytic part of many solutions helping overcome critical market barriers faced by private sector the blended finance market in india is nascent but is at inflection point basically whatever the country has achieved till now has happened from the regular commercial borrowings actually there is not a very big play on the concession finance or any other hybrid instrument coming in at that point of time as we are looking at scaling up because particularly to reach a 500 gigawatts of uh, pure green energy by 2030 from the renewable sources actually we need to practically double our investments so here actually to reach that size the blended finance will play a major role along with all other instruments so but blended finance can play a major role and actually the presentation made by the previous speaker uh, 
which shows the unutilized fund allocations available internationally. I think maybe we can make a good case, basically to ensure that the requirements on the green financing are met, the taxonomies are properly defined, and the end use is properly you know, uh, certified so that we can attract even part of these investments to this country so that we can really scale up our investment in this sector to reach certain goals. And also, where not only it is a renewable energy space, like other all other infrastructure investments which are happening, to make it sustainable, generally it involves a slightly higher cost, and that has to be subsidized by way of some kind of blended finance, which will help to reduce the cost so that it makes profitable for the private sector to look at ESG compliances in a much better, uh, com with a much better commercial sense. Thank you. I'll stop here. And thank you again for the opportunity. Thank you, Mr. Rai. I think you made uh, very many important points adding on to what Aman and Samantha had said, uh, which is, I think the main issue is about scaling finance, right? And through the blended finance instrument, uh, while also scaling up the commercial flows to the right kind of projects. Um, I will turn to you, Adama, right now, because uh, while we know that, you know, there needs to be common framework, we, we need to increase the volumes, and yet it makes me think that one size may not fit all, you know, there would be a greater need for localization as well. Now, uh, Financing Common has been working extensively with public development banks and, and national development banks, and uh, so... We really would like to hear from you that recently, of course, in the summit that you concluded in June, the momentum seems to be gearing up for a pretty uh, a concrete action uh, on on these on these topics that you've just heard. So uh, the floor is to you, uh, um, Adama, to tell us what and what role and what kind of priorities of action that Finance in Common has uh, placed before itself. No, thank thank you very much. Um, and first of all. Uh... Let me thank you, all of you, you know, OGI Climate Bond Initiative for convening this event, actually, and also take this opportunity to congratulate Mr. A, the Managing Director of uh, NAPFID, um, and uh, just to also show our support as financing command, tell you that you are a member of a global community of public development banks, of 530 public development banks in the world. Uh, um, of course, we notice very much the, the role and the, 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 the movement uh, coming from India. And so hopefully we will have the opportunity to, to, to deep dive in it uh, in further discussions. Also notice that um, public development banks create a specific role uh, while we're facing crisis as well. And uh, you were mentioning earlier, I think it's Samantha mentioned PTCMI in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Indonesia. It's a, it's a you know, clear example of how also governments uh, rock structure their own financial systems to bring public development banks to invest more on their you know uh, national priorities, long-term investment, public uh, finance uh, accession, um, and just a number that can uh, magnify that. 20% uh, of the existing public development banks on the world right now have been created after 2008 after the, the subprime crisis. I mean, I mean, this is an, a signal as well, uh, where governments, while the fiscal surface is narrowing, uh, create uh, public tools to focus on their uh, SDG transition and their, and their social transitions in their country. So it's also an occasion for me to, uh, you know, to thank 
and recognize India, which have been uh, very, you know, uh, leading in the G20 uh, presidency this year, uh, and the impactful discussions we had also uh, with the Indian presidency on the role that public development banks can play in this international financial architecture. So we all know that there is an urgent need uh, for finance to reorient and leverage all the financial flows, uh, be it private or, or public, in the directions of the of the SDGs. Uh, and, 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 you know, I, I used to say that we have just um, 77 months left. I mean, if we look at it this way until 2030, it shows that uh, we don't have uh, that much time uh, to, to get uh, at the critical goals that we are still facing. So with the public mandates uh, in their respective economic and social ecosystem, the public development banks um, can build the bridges between governments and the private sector, between the domestic and the international priorities that we are facing, and between also the global liquidity and the microeconomic solutions we find on the ground. So, and between also the short-term needs and the long-term priorities we are facing. So all the public development banks are at different stages. Uh, some are, you know, uh, very global oriented. Others are very small and 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 uh, locally uh, implanted. And um, at those different stages, we can also add that uh, to get the full potential of these specific financial players, the setup of a network is a key. That's why financing common exists. So a global coalition such the IDFC or FIX help public development banks to ensure that the investments align with and contribute to the achievements of the SDGs, the Paris Agreement and the Kunming Memorial Biodiversity Framework. So since 2020, Financing Common has become the global movement of all the public development banks and their stakeholders. We are not just banks among banks, but we have to structure a discussion with others as well, contributing to the emergence of a global framework for sustainable investment. This year, it has been mentioned, we had this um, our fourth edition of the Financial Common Summit last September in Colombia, and I take also here the opportunity to thank all of you that have been there. Uh, we first just mentioned um, the group. Fixed coalition, just few numbers. It represents 23 trillion of total assets of all those banks that are reunited in this coalition. It's also 2.5 trillion of annual investment every year that are, is bringing it in the economy, more than 10% of the total investment flows on the world. So this group is playing a significant role, uh, a, a contracyclical role, of course, and um, they are increasing you know, uh, the, the, the total amount the, the, you know, bring in the economies and the response we have facing the crisis. So while we are saying that, it's not just an, a, a, a matter of, you know, a, a, a total money. It's also how this money is oriented on the priorities for the planet and the four SDGs. That's why also we agreed in Cartagena to build a working program on which the progress report will be shown soon, but also to align and, and focus to find solution uh, and financial solution to increase cooperation and joy something to mobilize more uh, with willing stakeholders. We also offered to support our governments. And I'm using this word because we often forget that public development banks are not just uh, entities that are in this space. They are created by governments. And as we have this multilateral system, 
We have also national development banks that are owned by those uh, who are also shareholders of those multilateral banks. So it's really important to connect those and to see that we can offer to our governments and contribute uh, to the reform for the international uh, financial architecture. One of the takeaways we had uh, from uh, Cartagena of the summit is that more synergies between multilateral development banks and other development banks could contribute to ramp up the regional, national, and subnational investment, including from the private sector and the global outcomes. To do so, we need to work as a system, I said it. But also, I believe that public development banks should be associated much more closely by policymakers. For them to support the elaboration and the implementation of national priorities towards sustainable development. To also bring a posture which is more, you know, to be seen as SDG enablers. Public development banks are, of course, uh, ready to act as honest brokers uh, and help to develop bankable projects in their countries and increase the co-financing opportunities as well. But for this to happen, the G20 specifically has, you know, a very important important role to play. Regulatory and policy frameworks are essential, and uh, uh, Mr. Ray was mentioning it, you know, by mentioning the taxonomy issues, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, are essential to unleash public development banks' potential. Essentially, through the following levers, I'm going to mention. One is how to strengthen public development banks' mandate to significantly align their operations with the SDGs through incentives, incentivizing policies and regulatory frameworks that can work with their priorities. How also to enhance public development banks' capital base and financial capabilities at scale. So by saying that, I'm just going to give an example. The IDFC is a core of 26 development banks in the world. Uh, but if you show, if you look at their portfolios, you have, you know, 20% of their annual commitments uh, at average, not all of them, but in the average, if you add up those banks, 20% of their annual financing are, um, uh, you know, related to adaptation, mitigation, and let's say climate finance, right? So it's up to $288 billion dollars that they are bringing in 2022 in climate finance, more than the MDB's guys rate. If you make a clear mandate for the public development banks, all of them actually, by saying in average, all the public development banks in the world should put 20% of their annual commitments towards uh, climate finance, it brings 500 billion every year in the climate finance need. I mean, if we look at those numbers, it's clear that having a clear mandate from the governments and from the, the shareholders that are the governments, incentivizing the, the, the public development banks, we can reach you know, that such uh, amount of investment in climate finance. Last but not least, we need to seize the current momentum on the MDB reform to reflect on a broader definition of the architecture of international financing that encourages all players in the system to incentivize their synergies and cooperate together. I used to say that public development banks don't compete somehow because we have governments that play geostrategy. You know, private sector is born by competition. You know, 
But public development banks all around the world, we know how to cooperate. And that's probably the, the leverage we can, we can bring in these international discussions. With a view to achieving the SDGs, whether that's public development banks operating at different uh, levels, but not just them. We have also to think of how we link these coalitions in a broader way that have discussions with other synopsis, with private sector representatives, private financiers specifically, the G funds, for example, and also the regulators. Of course, I'm thinking about the NGFS. I'm going to stop there for now. Thank you, Adama. And, uh, you brought an IFC in your comments, and I really would like to bring in Shalab right now. Uh, you have produced a report on blended finance for India recently. And uh, uh, my question to you is that, you know, we are talking about this, and yet there needs to be perhaps more clarity on uh, certain principles, certain frameworks around blended finance. What should be the ones that, uh, you know, you would really look at in terms of guiding capital and mixing concessional finance to scale up. So uh, from your point of view, what is required to be done, especially within uh, with India in mind? Okay, thanks, Neha. So I'll, I'll be very quick here because I have a hard stop. First, let me acknowledge uh, a number of points that Samantha made. These were points that I also wanted to make. So the role of the local development bank, development of local capital markets is critical because there's a natural currency hedge. Uh, and so, and, and with that, uh, mobilization is critical. So while a lot of speakers and uh, have mentioned blended finance for mobilization and concessional finance, it's not a silver bullet. Let me first upfront say it is not a silver bullet for everything we are trying to do in climate. Uh, unfortunately or fortunately, whatever way you look at it, there is uh, uh, no substitute for de-risking a particular sector in a particular geography for specific investors. So one has to get granular in that country and make that sector sustainable for commercial capital. There is absolutely no substitute for that in the long run. Blended finance can only aid you to get there in the interim. So we view blended finance, and IFC is one of the largest multilateral development banks who have acted as uh, agents for blended finance. Uh, we view it as temporary subsidy. It's returnable capital. 98% of blended finance that we have deployed in various countries is uh, returnable. Only 2% has been grants or non-returnable. And those have been deployed for things like technical assistance that you mentioned, Neha, at the start. And there's a lot of role for that also, technical assistance, building up the ecosystem and so on. So the returnable capital principles are as follows. And this has been discussed with a number of donors who have given us that money. First is minimum concessionality. That doesn't mean small size. It means don't give more blended finance than is really required for that particular transaction or sector because ultimately you have to crowd in private capital. Second, no market distortion. The blended finance should not give unfair advantage to the user of blended finance vis-a-vis -vis other market forces. And the third is the road to commercial sustainability of the sector or of the project or of the ecosystem that we are applying blended finance. I think these Three principles are tested for deployment of blended finance in pretty much almost everything that we try to do with our committee. And, and therefore, and I think the last principle is very important because if you say, and Samantha also made the point about billions to billions, I think the concessional finance pie is even more smaller. It's, it's finite and it has even more stringent conditions around it. So there has to be a clear bank for buck 
for using that blended finance. And therefore, whenever you use it, there should be enough carrot and stick so that it's temporary in nature, so that the subsidy is temporary in nature. And over time, the, the system develops and becomes commercially sustainable. We have applied it in the past for renewable energy. We have applied it for agri-finance at a fund level. We are looking at applying it for credit enhancement in electric mobility, for energy storage, uh, for green hydrogen. These are some of the sectors where we have either applied or are planning to apply. And, and the last point is uh, uh, the role of local, and I, I saw some Q&A, somebody asked a question also. Uh, I think the amongst, let's say India can take a lead, amongst all the institutions in India, they should pick one or two institutions who can act as trusted agents for attracting this blended finance and for deploying it and deciding which sector will yield the best bang for buck. And we are actually in touch with Mr. Rajkiran Rai of NDB and many other local private banks where we have supported trying to develop this uh, partnership framework so that the best bang for buck can be delivered. I'm sorry, I'm running out of time. So I thought I'll get a lot of points in just in time. Thank you, Neha. Thank you so much, Shala. Thank you for your uh, participation. Yeah. So I think uh, with all of this, I would it would be fantastic to learn about some of the examples that have, you know, uh, say BNDS, even ADB and GBSA, which have been working very actively uh, with this particular structural instrument. So I move to BNDS now, Mr. Uh, Nabil Kadri. Um, you are one of the largest development banks and uh, very successfully accessing and deploying uh, uh, monies to uh, for for SDG and climate action also. Uh, so to do this, uh, you know, you have also used pooled portfolio approaches, and you've been uh, building, you've been contributing to building the investment pipelines as well. Uh, so just tell us a little bit about some of these approaches and how you have used uh, concessional finance in 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 these um, uh, on the, on these fronts. Over to you, Mr. Kadri. Uh, Neha. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for the invitation. This uh, panel today is really important and interesting to address. One of the biggest questions that we always heard is related to how to strengthen the flows of international resources for the transition to a low carbon economy. Uh, I can say that for the last 15 years, I've been asked by this question, and I'm very uh, pleased to 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 see the presentation that Samantha showed. Uh, it's um, I can I want to highlight two things that Samantha said, and after it uh, go through our experience. Uh, one thing that we are always thinking about is how to scale up the the resources because you know uh, to access the resources is we have all the different ways by uh, uh, green bonds by national bonds by direct uh, fundraising by fund fundraising with financial institutions with climate funds and what we saw that worked better in these years uh, we saw uh, working better in scale and in and when we talk about time, because the time is really important. We need the resources now to, to make the change now, not receive the resources 
10 years after, five years after, no. We need to begin now. The changes in the private sector and the industries that need to make the, transi the energy transition. It's not uh, fast, we, we know. It takes five, 10, 20 years to, 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 to be solved. So what we saw that we is working better. First of all, when once we talk on programs and not projects, so we we can uh, set programs to uh, make this kind of fundraise. And when I say programs, is related to results based. So we know what kind of result we want. It's easy. It's not that difficult. It's simple. We know that we want to reduce fossil fuels and have more renewable energy. So every investment in renewable energy must be subsidized. Just it. As simple as that. So how can we do programs saying, okay, I will use this $10 billion to allocate in renewable uh, pro uh, projects for the next 10 years, and then we do some report on it, on the allocation of the resource and the results on reducing uh, the, the the carbon emissions. So the fundraises that we do using this kind of logic, the logic of program, is doing well uh, when we talk about volume and time. But once we go through a specific project, we go through a lot of details that take so many time to make only one fundraise. So I think, Samantha, somehow uh, to have a, a, a better flow on these resources, we must try to understand the basis for this kind of programs and not projects uh, approach. And the second thing, it's really, really important when we talk uh, here at G20 and looking the differences between uh, the countries, most of these resources are uh, allocated in US dollars. And once we talk on North and South or developed and not developed countries, we have a very interesting thing is the exchange rate, risk. For a long-term uh, 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 credit loan, for example, 20 years, 30 years, we don't have hedge contracts to support this kind of uh, uh, instruments. So all the gap that we diminished in the interest rates with concessional loans in dollars, in euros, we lose all these mm -hmm. into transactional costs related to exchange rate. So we need to face it directly and we need to try to understand which kind of instrument can be done by the multilateral uh, development development banks or the climate funds or the government to support this kind of risk and not lose all these uh, uh, gain in the reducing the interest rate in the uh, 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 exchange rate risks. So all the time I talk on it because it, it's important. Most of the time, the contracts for hedge are a five-year based. How I'm talking on changing a whole sector, making the transition 
from the fossil to renewable that takes 10, 20, 30 years to be done, talking on contracts based in five years, terms. So structurally, we need to uh, find or try to find solutions inside of the financial uh, ecosystem to solve this because uh, the flows would get more um, uh, easily done by north to south with we solve it. Uh, so these are two I think we have lost him. Mr. Kadri, we can't hear you. Okay. Uh, so I will carry on in the interest of time. Oh, are you back? Nabil, we couldn't hear you. I think you're frozen. Something is uh, uh, probably, you know, it's a connectivity issue. Uh, we will come back to you, but uh, I think it's a very important uh, point that he has raised. Uh, and these questions will be, I will be asking these questions to, to you, Adama, and to you, Anuj, a bit later. Uh, this is the question around programmatic approach, reducing the transaction costs, and actually promoting local currency lending and issuances because to, to, to really uh, cut the losses on the currency fluctuations, right? And the very, very important issues. But before the, before I do that, I'll move to Matapelo Malau from DBSA. And uh, you are uh, looking at uh, energy sector and ICT sector, uh, I would simply ask a very, very simple question. It's again about scale. What is DBSA's uh, experience in scaling private investment in support of green transition? And particularly if you can reflect on uh, from your sector priority perspective, that would be great. Matpelu, over to you. Thanks, Neha. So perhaps maybe just um, before I delve into the question, I think it's important to just highlight, um, you know, just some of the work that we've been doing as 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 DBSA and what really, what our objectives and purpose um, is in relation to obviously climate finance. Um, so you know, our, our really primary goal is obviously to promote economic development, um, growth as well as regional integration through infrastructure finance and and development within the continent. So, you know, our focus is is um, uh, not only in South Africa but but also throughout the rest of the continent where about 60% of our loan book um, is, is really primar primarily focused in terms of mobilizing funding and providing funding towards infrastructure projects um, and climate finance related projects in, in South Africa. Um, and that's because obviously we're backed by the South African government, you know, a big portion of our balance sheet really comes from um, SA Link, um, you know, loans. Um, but we also obviously, um, you know, uh, uh, obtain funding from the capital markets as well. Um, so what what I think is 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 important is that you know DBSA um, applies a very rigorous credit investment process um, in in terms of driving our strategic objectives of financial sustainability um, and enhanced development impact. Um, and in, and in addition to that, you know that's primarily guided by environmental and social safeguards policy. Um, you know we finance projects. Uh, not only in the climate finance space, but also water and sanitation, because we're seeing that we've got a big problem also in South Africa in regards to water shortages. So not only are we faced with, you know, electricity crisis um, with the ongoing uh, load shedding, but there's also a, a looming um, crisis that we're facing in South Africa in regards to water shedding, which is which is now known as kind of water shedding. Um, and and, and water is becoming also a very big focus and drive 
um, which is why we've, we've actually recently launched a kind of a a water uh, water fund, which will then effectively look um, at in, in, you know kind of mobilizing funding and and, and investment um, in regards to water and and sanitation related type of um, in, investments. So um, when we talk about mobilization of funding, um, so we provide very bespoke solutions in regards to um, the type of uh, uh, catalyzation required, and um, particularly in the in our role as a DFI. So the one is is that you know. Um, we provide funding to facilitate black economic empowerment as well as women-owned entities, which is a very big drive in South Africa. So, you know, gender imperatives um, is is quite key uh, because of our past as as, as South Africa. Um, so what we do is that, you know, in most of these energy uh, and, and climate finance related projects, we try and catalyze as much funding towards supporting, you know, the marginally um, excluded or, or what, what was known as historically disadvantaged individuals in, in, in our country. Um, and in some instances, in fact, um, we can even provide 100% gearing, particularly towards community trust Um so that that's that's really the backdrop of uh, some of the initiatives that we've we've done, and from a you know loan syndication perspective, um, you know infrastructure projects require significant capital investments, and given you know the limited risk appetite amongst uh, uh, individual banks to fund an entire debt tranche, DBSA has developed a syndicated loan product to manage credit risk while supporting our clients' fi financing needs. We also um, provide non-ECA cover where, for instance, DBSA will invest into uncovered portion of an export credit agency back transaction to encourage financial closure of commercial tranche of transaction, which, which is which is quite key. So if you look at the, the actual life cycle of a, of a project, we come in right from the early phase, which is the project preparation phase, where you know it's, it's not just about mobilizing funding at that space, but it's also about providing the non-financial support, right? So, uh, you know, what is required to effectively get a project from pre-feasibility to bankability? And we've got a designated team that, you know, would, would basically assist sponsors, project sponsors, in terms of, um, uh, you know, helping them to, to get to that phase where a project can be bankable, where we can provide CapEx-related um, funding into the project to see it through. And also, what is what is key as well, um, you know, wearing our hat as a DFI is the the credit enhancement instruments, which make us very competitive in comparison to the commercial bank. So the South African banking system, and I think we've got a fairly sophisticated banking system, which is led by, you know, probably four or five key commercial banks, um, and a few DFIs. Uh, but what we're seeing in the climate finance um, space is that it's becoming incredibly competitive, you know, because every institu institution wants to transform their loan book to becoming more green. Um, and therefore, it's it's a space which is becoming extremely crowded and therefore innovation becomes very key. And this is why, for instance, our role as a DFI becomes very, very important in terms of uh, as being, you know, our ability to be able to crowd in funding, but also become relevant in the space. So what we've done is that we've, from a credit enhancement perspective, uh, we have very nuanced products um, in the form of, for instance, the first loss risk cover, um, which, which is not usually a subordinated uh, type of facility, uh, where we're able to provide 20% risk uh, uh, first risk loss cover, which becomes very attractive for commercial banks, because in an event of default, for instance, you know, we're able to, uh, you know, to sit behind or to take uh, some level of risk appetite in the deal. Um, 
you know, we spoke quite extensively about, about concessional funding and, and, and one of the things that um, is becoming quite attractive, uh, particularly for these type of projects, is also the loan term exten extension, which we're able to provide up to 20 years. You, you know, we, we, we also um, have guaranteed products and there's a new type of innovative project, pro, uh, product which we are about to launch um, in, 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 in the space in the space, which will basically be able to support, you know, construction companies and, and electrical and mechanical companies that are working in the, the renewable energy uh, projects to be able to give them some kind of guaranteed products. So what, what we've seen in the South African market is that our construction industry has become, um, it's become a very challenged, uh, you know, kind of market where, uh, you know, construction companies are facing extreme difficulties in terms of raising funding, particularly for guarantees. And, you know, with, with a lot of the uh, these type of product, uh, projects, the EPC contract obviously requires a level of performance bond that needs to be placed um, and, 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 and uh, you know, um, and, and also an advanced payment guarantee that, that the contractor needs to place. Which becomes very difficult in a in a market where you know you've got rise um, unemployment rates, um, we've got uh, rising inflation. In fact, our GDP growth is, is is has very much stagnated over the last few years, and therefore this is where now you know the role of a, of a development finance institution such as DFR, uh, DBSA is playing such a critical role in terms of unlocking um, you know funding uh, mechanisms in the market to be able to. To you know, to 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 aid and and to to sort of catalyze some level of investment in the sector. Um, the other thing that we we also do is pro provide capital payment suspensions, um, uh, particularly during you know during the construction phase, where we're able to provide a monitorium in terms of capital repayment, um, which which is um, which is very very useful. So, 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 so that I mean, I think demonstrates some of our capabilities in terms of being able to crowd in a, a private funding. And um, when we've got designated um, energy-related or climate financing and adaptation-related type of uh, funding vehicles, um, as as you may be aware, I mean, I can talk briefly um, uh, about 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 some of the funding financing that we're providing there. So we've got uh, what we call a climate financing um, facility. And um, you know uh, that 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 climate financing facility was obviously uh, developed, you know, given the the climate change uh, challenges that that continue to threaten the environment as well as the people that that are dependent on it. Um, as we know, obviously, climate change crisis um, sends out a call for urgent solutions to mitigate the risks that come with the climate change. Um, and um, investment into this space has become very critical in terms of helping to develop critical and resilient. And sustainable sustainable infrastructure to to shape the recovery from you know effects of the climate change and we have seen this recently um, in some of our provinces in South Africa where climate change um, has become very detrimental to to the environment you know uh, to, to 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 the to the environment and um, you know urgent solutions are required um, from from government as well as financing institutions such as such as DBSA to to help mo mobilize funding I mean we spoke earlier about the uh, the independent renewable energy program which was in, in fact actually con conceptualized and and developed at, at DBSA so what you're starting to see is the role in which you know a DFI is is playing in terms of also shaping policy mm -hmm. um you know in 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 government 
and that's the role that we're starting to to play as 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 well. And I'll also touch a little bit about about that. But um, you know, I think for for us as a South, South African economy, you know, we've been primarily dependent on fossil fuel, um, for many many years. I mean, uh, you know, coal coal has been a, a, a one of our biggest um, you know, powered, uh, you know, uh, power sources. Um, and 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 the way that the South African economy has been structured uh, is, is has been primarily of of course um to to provide job security as well as opp uh, opportunities for many of our migrant labors who uh, work in the in the mining industry um and and therefore you know with this whole um uh, move and evolution towards uh, a just transition. It becomes very important how government is thinking as well as industry is thinking about repurposing of jobs. You know, what is going to happen to uh, many of our uh, migrant laborers who become, who were who so dependent on, on, on um, you know, these coal mine, mi mining uh, entities as a form of job security. So that, that becomes a very key element um, of of how we think about and how we approach climate finance as well. So it's not it's not just about the financing, but there's a big social imperative behind it, so that we become inclusive in the way we approach this. Thank you, thank you, Madhuvan. So, yeah, thank you so much for this because um, in so many ways you're similar to uh, India in terms of you know that our economy is locked into coal, fossil fuel, and the transition is going to be um, I think. Quite expensive if you, are, if you if you do not plan it well, uh, but also in some ways uh, sort of dissimilar because of just the size and scale and the diversity and the uh, just the kind of solutions that we need uh, over here would perhaps uh, vary vary a little bit, but. Uh, very, very concrete examples that you have uh, shared with us. Uh, moving on to, uh, I will open, I will, uh, I will open the discussion to lead discussions. But before I do that, I would like to go over to Anuj now. Uh, and for our lead discussions, I will just tell you uh, the, the order in which I will call you uh, to to make your interventions. Perhaps first I will ask Smita, then I will go to Nick, and then to Suranjali. Um, Anuj, you have been also uh, working on very specific on blended finance and in fact you are the architect of the green finance facility uh, at ADB for Southeast Asia region. Uh, the question that I'm going to ask you is really about the scale. Uh, what is it that you prioritize from what your word, from what your experience is? What are those key elements that we will require to scale up uh, concessional finance, to use the blended finance facility structures, models in a much more efficient and effective manner, especially uh, also tell us if you've been working with countries in specific uh, from the side of ADP. Over to you, Anuj. Sure, thank you very much. Hope you can hear me clearly. Yes. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I'll, I'll try and sort of, uh, you know, a lot of speakers have covered a lot of points. Maybe I'll just sort of, you know, speak two or three things. Um, and I'm going to sort of come at it with the approach of climate finance or green finance, uh, but it applies equally to, you know, we could choose an SDG topic specifically, but given that most of my focus, at least since 2015, has been green and climate finance in uh, Southeast Asia, and before that it was, a lot of it was in, in India, um, you know, I would, I would come with, you know, two or three key principles. Okay, so the first thing is, Catalyzing finance into climate or SDG-related infrastructure is a lot of funding required. We need 1.7 trillion a year in Asia Pacific. We don't have that. We have 50% financing gap or more, number one. 
Number two is to make that happen, you need two prongs. So you need certainly the pipeline of projects. And it's, 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 it's very easily forgotten that the pipeline of projects is not just any projects, but they differ according to each sector. You can almost, almost say that a lot of energy has already been covered. Renewable energy, wind, solar, a lot of good things have been done, especially in the Indian context. But there is a lot more. There's water, sanitation, green buildings, urban transport. So if you, if you look at the, the range of projects, you need to look at pipelines of projects per sector. There isn't just project development, but it is project in transport and in, in, in water, et cetera. So one prong is how do you develop the projects which are anchor projects which can be replicated? And number two is where are the financing instruments which can bring in uh, funding into those kind of projects? And I think the approach has to be integrated. That's why whenever I hear a lot of discussion about let's do more green bonds, I think that's wrong because all you're doing is raising a lot of finance from you know, sort of the markets, but you're not deploying it to projects because the pipeline isn't there. Or number two, you're raising a lot of green bonds at commercial prices mm -hmm. for projects which are not always able to take the commercial prices. When you're talking about nature-based solutions, for example, you need to really think about structured green bonds, not vanilla green bonds. And I think that's a real issue which needs to be thought about. So if you look at this issue of pipeline and about instruments, you then come to what sort of work a development bank like ourselves or many of my colleagues over here are doing uh, in different countries. So you can take a national approach or you can take a regional approach. And you know, if you know a lot, a lot of a lot of what I'm talking about is covered by uh, a facility, uh, a structure that we created, which was called Catalyzing Green Finance. It was a it was a, a, a book that we published in 2015, and a lot of work is actually being done based on that. So this this basically says leverage one to six. Very simple. The message is: Can we use a lot of uh, catalytic finance from development banks to really leverage financing from other sources? So that is really, you know, the 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 main the main aspect that I would actually focus on. How are we doing this in uh, in uh, in national level or at regional levels? So we are doing it in two ways. At the national level. Uh, we've been working on developing green finance facilities. And the, the most obvious example of which, since a number of people spoke about PTSMI in Indonesia, is SDG Indonesia 1. The green finance facility at PTSMI is, is a project that, that I actually led and developed in two or three years ago. That is the first green finance facility in Southeast Asia inside a development bank, PTSMI, uh, which has got a framework and principles so defines green, that, that's the easy part. More complicated is how can you leverage the funding coming from ADB through the government to catalyze a number of dollars more from the private sector. Just very quickly, there's already something like about 25 projects in that pipeline with PTSMI when we initially identified it. It has a potential to recycle or leverage ADB's money seven to eight times. I'm just talking about PTSMI's green finance facility, number one. Number two, uh, at a province level, so I'm not even talking national level, but at a province level, the same aspect could be done 
using an SPV, a special purpose vehicle, or another bank. And the example for that is the Shandong Green Finance Facility in China. Again, a green finance facility, again, putting in place principles for how development funds can be used to catalyze money into lots of different aspects. And then I would talk at a regional level, which is the ASEAN Green Facility, ACGF, which, uh, which we, we set up in 2018. And this is at a regional level saying, can we support the development of green infra across Southeast Asia with innovative use of ADB and partner monies? That's $2 billion in financing facility from 13 partners managed by a team of us in ADB in Manila. So I would say that development of these leveraging, and I'm very, very worried about using the word blended finance because many different institutions have many different contexts for it. I prefer to use the word leverage finance, which is, can we leverage the development finance coming from uh, the World Bank, ADB, et cetera, to catalyze X number of dollars in a structured manner? Second point I want to make apart from these leveraged finance facilities for catalyzing green at national, regional, or subnational level is the development of finance instruments. So now, if, for example, we are looking at developing uh, green social sustainable bonds, uh, that is necessary at specific entities who haven't done it before. So we launched an initiative in 2018 here in Thailand, which we call GSS Plus, and that is working at a national level to develop green social sustainable bonds. We've done government of Thailand sustainability bond support. This is using technical assistance. We've done it at an SOE level, housing bank uh, or government savings bank, a social bond. And now we're trying to do it at a city level. So what you're trying to do is help those agencies conceive what the framework and the bond issuance process could be, but almost more importantly, what is the right pipeline of projects where the money could actually be deployed? So as I said, again, integrated approach. My very last point, we're working right now on, for example, you know, sort of, I think, I think the days to sort of, you know, to speak about very generically climate or green is gone. You're now sort of focusing on more challenging areas where development banks need to go, which is themes. So nature-based solutions or biodiversity. Very hard to get finance into these from commercial banks, capital markets, et cetera. So now the era has come into structured bonds. So we are working, for example, there's, an, there's a nice entity working on these areas called the Sustainable Sovereign Debt Hub in Geneva, led by a former UNEP uh, person. Uh, we are working on a nature finance hub. And there we are talking about how do you link concessional finance from climate funds or development finance from agencies like ourselves into building in incentives for the coupon payment on bonds so that basically you incentivize underlying agencies or projects to be able to deploy that money to what may have been unbankable projects. So incentive linked impact bonds. So there's a lot of work going on on that, which says, you know, if you have a certain impact, which is better than the baseline, then that much could be offset by development funds. Examples of this, things are being done in Uruguay. There's a good bond by, you know, our great colleagues from the IADB. Uh, there are other bonds which are being structured with uh, some of my colleagues in UNEP on Tigers, etc. So some really good examples. So I would probably finish by saying, number one, integrated approach required in terms of capacity, policy, instruments, pipeline development, and de-risking funds. And putting it all together to go, you know, maybe sub-green, which is going into specific themes where things ain't happening. That's where the value would be uh, more valuable for, for, for development banks like ourselves. 
and there are good examples even in India, which which we could uh, which we could talk about if needed. And um, let me stop over there. Thanks a lot, Anuj. And I think uh, the message is very clear and we will probably get into a couple of more details in the next round. Get more granular, get more specific. Uh, there is no one size fits all. Uh, the scale will happen from uh, visible bankable projects, create those pipelines. Uh, I will uh, open it to our uh, uh, lead discussants right now and bring uh, you into the discussion, Swetha. You have been working a lot also with banks and NBFCs and uh, on a wide variety of topics, right? And uh, and also DFI. So what is your sense of the Indian market where it is? And what do you think we should, we should be looking at in terms of priority? Thank you. Thank you, Neha. And uh, hi, everybody. So it was very interesting to hear uh, from the NDVs themselves on their views on climate finance and, uh, you know, to understand what best practices are being adopted. Uh, so I would like to touch upon a couple of areas here. So uh, one is, uh, I think what we've not spoken about, it has been spoken about by earlier speakers in parts, but not really focusing on is the adaptation angle. Uh, so while uh, mobilizing capital towards climate mitigation is very important, uh, as climate disasters are only set to increase, uh, it becomes very crucial to kind of you know, invest substantial resources in building resilience, adapting to the changes which are already underway. Uh, so just some data, 2021, 2022, there has been more than 300 natural disasters uh, globally and the uh, amount needed to kind of look at this is, uh, is also humongous, right? So about $70 billion or so. So therefore, uh, there's an urgency for adaptation capital to flow into ecological, social, economic systems in response to you know, actual or expected uh, the climate uh, events which are going to happen. And despite uh, emerging as a pri pressing priority, the flow of adaptation finance is very less about, uh, so as of December, 2022, about 14% of global climate finance or even lesser than that. And for developing countries, uh, international adaptation finance flows are five to 10 times below the needs which are needed. In fact, RBI in its, uh, currency and finance report, which came out earlier this year, estimates that uh, India's cumulative cost of climate adaptation could be around $1 trillion, uh, uh, which is a huge sum. So what is it that is, uh, you know, deterring financiers to look at adaptation? So our interaction with banks uh, also throw this light. And I think it's uh, equally, uh, you know, relevant when we talk of NDBs in this uh, context. So first is obviously the lack of understanding of assessing adaptation projects. So while renewable energy projects, revenue models of these projects are fairly uh, understandable uh, today, uh, adaptation as a topic is still nascent from a financier's lens. So the impact of you know, key approaches like ecosystem-based adaptation, for example, has not been systematically measured uh, and not have the full range of potential environmental and social benefits. So, so that's, that's like a, a gray area. Second is, again, investment horizon of adaptation projects are inherently long-term. Ticket sizes may be smaller. So I, I liked uh, DBSA's inputs around how they are looking at the long tenor and uh, kind of adapting to that. Uh, next is, again, the perception of the higher risk. So adaptation projects often have unproven concepts, making these high risk uh, due to unreliable revenue sources. So one way of addressing some of these challenges is to look at uh, incentives or risk covers, uh, ease of access to these, you know, to motivate capital flows uh, to vulnerable sectors. 
given the uncertainty of the ROI. So uh, that's where NDBs can serve as efficient channels to provide the necessary risk covers and um, credit enhancements. And also from a sector perspective, you know, large focus of uh, adaptation itself has been around agriculture and understandably so. That's uh, So NABAD, for example, is a national implementing uh, entity of the National Adaptation Fund for Climate Change. But there is uh, there are other sectors where NDBs can look beyond, right? So for example, uh, affordable housing is under the National Infrastructure Pipeline. So green affordable housing, for example, can be made into a priority sector to look at it from an adaptation uh, standpoint. So therefore, not only as fund conduits for, uh, from MDBs and national governments for mitigation projects, but also from a, uh, you know, looking at how their positions as with deep expertise in local, uh, you know, knowledge, uh, they can use that to kind of addressing this huge gap within adaptation. Uh, quickly, I want to touch upon another point is about looking at transition planning for uh, NDBs themselves, you know, so while lending decisions are broadly based on uh, development needs of a country uh, for a national development bank uh, and balancing national policies, climate goals, etc. Uh, it's imperative to look at it from having a transition plan for their own portfolio. So mm -hmm. drawing transition plans which, you know, identify and plan how the entity will uh, align its business activities with, say, net zero targets, outlining costs and implementation action uh, over a short, medium, long term, uh, putting in terms of, you know, like for monitoring, reporting pro progress under transition plans. All these are like uh, building blocks which can be, you know, uh, put in place. So while typical lending of NDBs is towards a large infrastructure projects undertaken mostly on government mandates, uh, and it may not seem so easy to set off on, you know, decarbonization transition goals. So that's what uh, we hear with uh, the different banks we interact with the large uh, the, uh, DFIs. Uh, but despite that, you know, initial small steps in terms of, you know, say baselining emissions or setting uh, targets uh, and bringing changes within the governance, within policies, uh, within their own systems uh, is important to start uh, down this journey. And one last point in this is, you know, to do all this, uh, uh, a very important component is to build capacities within the NDBs. Uh, so credit officers, risk officers, how they need to kind of understand these concepts uh, and the importance to kind of look at the larger picture, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, aligning portfolios towards uh, uh, the transition pathway itself. Uh, so, so I'm very happy to mention that the India Initiative, uh, in addition to training banks, which we're doing as an important part of our, uh, our program, we're also looking at uh, training some of the large NDBs within India. Uh, so, so that's that's a very good, uh, you know, uh, step I would say this uh, direction. So I'll stop here, Neha. Back to you. And uh, happy well, to thank hear. You, Sita, thank you. Thank you for bringing out some very new points. I think one can reflect over, especially around transition plans. Uh, I know we are uh, running short on time and we are behind schedule. Um, without uh, trying to take too much out of to uh, slicing into the time that my uh, next speakers have, uh, I would just like to just say that keep your comments of more focused uh, on very concrete measures that if you're uh, thinking about. I will turn to you, Nick. We heard about granularity. We heard about specificity. 
I would like to probably uh, ask you, uh, in the broader theme of just transition, do you think NDBs have a role to play? And if they do, uh, do you, how do you really uh, uh, imagine moving forward when it comes to measurement of you know what they should be doing in in in, the, in respect to just transition, or at any other point that you have in mind? Well, thanks, uh, Nea, and thanks, uh, Samantha, uh, Mr. Rai, Adama, Nabil, Mathapelo, Anuj, everyone. It's been a masterclass. So thank you um, so much, and, and Smita as well. So just um, a couple of reflections briefly, if I may. I think it was really, really useful. Firstly, we're in a sort of G20 uh, context, and one of the things that sort of really was at the top of the New Delhi Declaration was the uh, focus and the commitment for all the heads of state to pursue development models that implement sustainable, inclusive and just transitions, leaving no one behind. Um, and I think what is really interesting, we're here in a session thinking about green transitions. But my reflection uh, is that particularly uh, national developments have a particular um, uh, capability for thinking about this notion of just transition. So green but also thinking about delivering on those wider development benefits in terms of jobs and livelihoods, uh, regions, uh, gender, and, and so on. So I think, it, I mean, I don't know if we have time, but um, that I would see as being a sort of, a, a, the NDBs as being actually really the heart of that. And we've already heard uh, Mathapelo talking about it in the South Africa context. So I think that's that, that's one area. And I think, again, we know NDBs can really move the markets, particularly in terms of, of structures. And again, Neha, just really good to see that uh, our two organizations, LSE and um, and Climate Bonds Initiative, working together on looking at actually how bonds and just transition to come together. So that's the, the first comment. You know, there's time. It's very interesting to see how sort of green transition and national development banks and these inclusive factors could come in. The second is really thinking about this issue about mobilizing external finance. And my colleague Nick Stern has highlighted that emerging economy is a need $2.4 trillion to do the transition by 2030 annually. And one trillion of that has got to be external. Now, I think there's an assumption that really it's only the MDBs who can mobilize external finance. And again, I would think from all the, the experts that have spoken, again, I think highlighting the roles of national development banks because they are rooted, they are linked to the government process, they, are, they do understand markets probably uh, in a more in-depth way. I would, I think, really seizing, and I don't know, Adama, from a sort of um, uh, finance and common point of view, seeing how they can be agents for mobilizing external finance. This is not just something for MDBs, but something particularly that the, the national banks can do. And, and certainly that, that's a particular role. So I'll stop there. But um, thanks to everyone for a real expert, um, expert uh, presentation. Uh, thank you, Nick. And I think there was a question also in the chat box around adaptation finance and what could be done to probably form common investment vehicles for adaptation and use NDB as a conduit for adaptation finance. So uh, that also, of course, links up to, you know, some of the aspects which are covered under just transition. So there is an overlap between adaptation, resilience, and just transition as well. Uh, moving on to you, um, um, uh, Suranjali, you are the real one who will, you know, put this at, okay, public finance is limited. Coming from that, concessional finance kitty is going to be limited. And looking at, especially the role of NAFID within the Indian context and what other banks are doing, uh, where do you see we should really, in the immediate term, say next two years, uh, also, 
um, you know, another lens I would like you to comment upon is NAPL's role is not only at the federal level, right? I think it is very much a very, very important uh, player at the sub-national level. Uh, so where do you see this fitting, the conversation today with concessional blended finance and what NAPFIT can do in, in the coming two to three years? How does it fit from the public finance point of view? Thank you, Neha, and thank you, Samantha. You have um, you know, turned our attention to our local institutions, which were forgotten for many years. Um, I think uh, the point to begin at is to say that India is a large country and, you know, we're talking about spatial impacts. And so therefore, we have to think of even more local institutions. Uh, it's not going to be just NAPFIT as you uh, underlined. So NAPFIT plays an important role, but we have to look at local institutions. And, you know, India has had a long history of state finance corporations. I was just going back to check. Uh, there are so many of them. Uh, and their key role was to fund medium and small enterprises, which I think are an important part of the transition conversation that we are having now. Uh, they're going to be uh, effects which are on the economic side, which is overall economies changing or shifting. There will be diversification. So the loans will not be just for green. We have to imagine an economy-wide thinking in regions. Then there's also infrastructure spend, uh, which I think ties in neatly with the national infrastructure plan we have. There's been some mapping, uh, you know, as already been mentioned, that there are these projects which are green aligned. Uh, so, so I think that's there. But who's going to implement this at the local level? And given the fact that, you know, 17 states uh, or, or more or less uh, are, are not able to meet the fiscal targets, uh, we're going to have to imagine uh, new ways to do this. Now, you have an organization such as NAPFID, which is thinking about different forms of financing. So you have, you know, takeout financing. Uh, you would have the capital, uh, which can be used. And I think that uh, is a learning that can be replicated perhaps at the state level, which is to say that the equity contributions can be small uh, and there could be other ways to collaborate with commercial institutions to scale up financing for specific uh, requirements in regions. And we're already seeing some interest, especially in the transport sector. So I think two sectors are key for India, as are for any other country in this transition, which is energy, uh, power, and uh, you have transport. And I think um, in transport, there's been some interest on charging facilities. And, and, and it kind of seems like a business case. I think those can be focus points. Um, they all also call for some kind of reform as well in, in public finance space. But I would say that it creates uh, some template for collaboration between uh, the public and the private. So those are my uh, quick comments on what can be done. And of course, NAPFID can collaborate um, at the state level. Uh, so I think that's another great thing uh, for subnational governments going forward. Uh, thanks, Ranjali. I do want to bring in one question, which is on the chat box, and maybe I will uh, give it to you, Samantha, and perhaps uh, my fellow also to reflect upon it. Um, maybe also Adama. So, okay, take your pick. The question is, is there any reason why international donors are not lending through emerging market DFIs? Is it lack of track record? Do they dislike local currency exposure? Is it lack of transparency about how funds will be used? So this is a question for Prashant Vazir. 
who would like to come in on what aspects? Samantha, can I begin with you? Yeah, I, I, I've actually posted my my answer in in the chat, but I quickly, I think it's a great question. It's something I think we need to explore and understand more. One kind of mapping the level of kind of engagement between the different, you know, multilaterals, regionals, and nationals, even subnationals, um, and at the same time, kind of understanding what what's kind of driving this so that's the first thing I think we need to do but more broadly and you know it's not a definitive answer but in my research I think it's fair to say that there was you know there's there's fads in thinking so if you think about the Washington kind of consensus um and I put this in the chat I think a lot of a lot of these banks were kind of closed down in terms of a, a particular kind of economic ideology where the state didn't really you know, shouldn't play uh, a big role, but also kind of a perceived issue potentially around kind of governance and force of some banks, not all banks, but some banks. Um, but I think the the pendulum is is swinging and you see kind of, you know, um, no longer the Washington Consensus, the FIC movement, FFD in 2015, complementary roles between public and, and private and actually kind of thinking, we've heard today about programmatic approaches and kind of this to me links around kind of plans, visions, industrial policy kind of thinking about how we grow and develop. And hence, if you like, the the, the rise of the phoenix kind of thing. Um, and Adam has mentioned, I think, that most a lot of banks have been created since kind of 2008. So there's been a pendulum swing um, mm -hmm. in terms of thinking. So... And also some, not not to say that there isn't any engagement, there are lots of great examples. I mean, Anuja has kind of like mentioned some of this. There are AFD, very big supporters of this agenda. So there are pockets, but mm -hmm. not enough, not enough, but it's changing. And this is why the FIC movement is so, is so important. Uh, so. Thanks, Amanda. And I think uh, I will take this question into our last segment, if you allow me, um, because there will be priorities, I think, that we would like to place in front of us when it comes to elevating this agenda within D20 upcoming presidencies. Uh, I will begin with you, Adama, and I will then turn to, I'd like to turn to Mr. Rai. From his point of view, if you were to look at which are those things where uh, the discourse as well as demonstration needs to be, uh, you know, uh, accelerated uh, within the international financial architecture conversations? And where would you like to, you know, uh, or what would you like to do, say, uh, in the Indian context? And this will be a question to everyone on on the uh, on the call. Uh, we we have very it's, it's take it like a rapid fire, please. Uh, 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 tell us something in two minutes because then I will hand it over to Karthik who will um, who will have the tough job to synthesize uh, the wonderful discussion that we've had uh, today. Um, yes, Adama, I will begin with you. All right, thanks. Um, I'm probably just gonna, you know, tip on the last point we, 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 we were discussing. Um, there is international finance, uh, but I think we should think of development finance not only on the international organizations funding in developing worlds. I mean that's that's probably the, the the problem we are we are facing. But 
Of course, if we look at the, the, the structure of the public development banks today, only 10% of the public development banks in the world have an international mandate, such as IFD or World Bank or uh, ADB, etc. The rest of them, 90% of the public development banks work on the national ground or the subnational ground in their country, in their, in their constituency. So the problem we see is, is there strong public development bank ecosystem in the in, in countries in order to link up with the international system where they are in the national ground, the first players and the last players, where they prepare projects, where they give co-financing opportunities with the international organizations and not just have you know, uh, different workflows. That's why we were calling on working as a system and having more integrated system where national development banks can keep working with the international uh, system. So two points at, at you know on, on the technicalities uh, of, of that. I think many of you have mentioned it. The issue around local currency is, mm -hmm. is huge. I mean, and, and, and by that risk, it's also where we find the most of the mismatch between the international financing system uh, in hard currency providing with the national system where, you know, the, those are the public development banks that rely heavily with the uh, foreign currency funding to support on the major development projects in their countries. So we should look at that specifically. That's why within the financing common, uh, we made it a priority and it will be one of the, our, our working um, uh, point this year uh, throughout the 2024 with the, with the G20 also. So to end off your, for your last comment on what are the calls we can make in the international system? I'm just gonna summarize it for the matter of time. So we have been calling mostly uh, upon the governments and their shareholders and, and you know, the public development banks uh, and their shareholders to allocate more concessional resources at an affordable cost, because all these issues is also an issue about cost of capital. If we sum up the cost of transactions, the rating issues, the, the regulation issues, et cetera, et cetera, it's just make the development finance or the climate finance um, a, a systemic problem if we don't solve the concessional resource access, right? So to enhance, the other point is how to enhance and monitor and evaluate uh, mechanisms and improve executing uh, and implementation capabilities for the public development banks to assess their own contribution uh, to, to SDG financing and to evaluate the effectiveness and impact of the development programs. Many of us here work through that pattern, but we think that we can also make more by giving this capacity to the national development banks where we can assess the relevancy of the investment they are making. The third point is also to support the harmonization of co-financing standards and adoption to adopt also the best global practices that are tailored and adapted to the local context. Other global efforts, of course, such as Bridgetown Initiative, the BRICS Summit, the new financial pact follow-up uh, we have in Paris, and other initiatives to reform the Bristol Woods institutions are very really much welcomed, of course. But I think we should take the opportunity also of the next year's international uh, agenda. The preparation for the upcoming for force financing for development, the Addis Plus 10 conference, uh, will be also um, an important step to bridge international finance architecture discussions with the SDGs, the climate and the biodiversity agenda. We should take opportunity on, on that as well. I have hopefully that can help, I think, but it's all about the mandate. And, and, and so just can say that we, can, we are here to, to help 
the G20 presidencies uh, and other, other countries if needed. Thanks. Thank you, Adama. Um, I will give the last word to Mr. Rai, so I will move very quickly across the table. Um, again, something that you want to say, Anuj, in terms of uh, elevating these discussions on platforms like G20, besides what you have heard. Uh, I think, you know, sort of, you know, I would basically sort of try and focus in on, uh, you know, the top development banks that we are, that we see in each of the countries, bring them all together, have a very clear discussion with them on creating de-risking blended facilities for SDGs or green within them, and a roadmap for working with them over a certain period to develop those facilities in these. I would keep it as specific and as simple as that uh, if, if I had the opportunity to pull them all together in one particular high-level event. Thank you, Anuj. I mean, that is already looks like a roadmap here. Yeah? Uh, Matapello, over to you. Can you hear us, Hi, Yeah, sorry. So, so um, so I I got cut off there, but I think I think what you're saying is the, the closing remarks, right? Yeah, so, closing remarks um, in the context of uh, what can be done to elevate this discussion for NDBs in the international uh, fora like G20. So, uh, one or two comments uh, quickly, uh, if you can conclude within two minutes. Sure. I mean, I think we need to have a very nuanced approach to this. So, I mean, no, no one solution is is suitable and appropriate for for uh, you know all of the countries. Um, you know, and I spoke quite extensively about South Africa and the challenges that we're facing as a country. Um, you know, obviously, as we move towards the evolution around um, you know green financing, we also need to be able to balance that with some of the social issues that we're facing within each each of the regions, more specifically, and I'm talking South Africa now. Um, that you know we've got to take a very programmatic approach and very integrated approach in terms of how we also unlock uh, and reduce poverty um, and and sort of inclusivity in the way we you know we 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 do things, um, but also balancing that obviously with the 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 need and requirement for um, you know cl uh, climate adaptation and just preservation. So those would be kind of my closing remarks. Thanks, thanks. Any additional comments from Nick Suranjali Smitha for this uh, part? Okay, then I will give it to uh, Mr. Rai to uh, reflect on this particular question and whatever additional comments that you want to make. Uh, thank you. I think uh, it is very interesting uh, discussions and a lot of learning for us from the international experience. Uh, what I feel is uh, basically uh, the National Development Bank actually have to develop that structures, the right structures and the instruments and identify the sectors so that uh, this international uh, funding, which is available. Actually, you know, uh, today the senior debt, the normal commercial finance moves internationally almost seamlessly. Uh, mm -hmm. Like if you look at India or any other economy, like, you know, the normal commercial debt, uh, uh, flows uh, seamlessly. I, what we are talking about is uh, the climate-related finance, the green finance, and the sustainable finance, basically, which is actually not a national problem, but it's an international problem. So we need to recognize that, and uh, internationally, whatever funding available. Uh, actually, there are two categories. Again, people who are looking at, ready to sacrifice some kind of return, so it can come at a lower interest rate, and there can be, there can be funds which are 
able to take higher risk actually, you know, uh, which can be the first loss kind of things. So I know we need to segregate uh, the kind of funds available and build that pipeline so that it can come to the emerging economies like India. See, it is very clearly made out uh, by Mr. Anuj. What are the financing gaps available? Like, you know, these can, because these are the emerging economies where a lot of actions are happening. The most of the, uh, the like fast growing economies today are uh, adding uh, most, most to the world GDP, but at the same time, you know, we are also contributing again to the pollution, the carbon, coming out compared to the developed economies the developing economies are the like the most polluting today because of the kind of growth their growth phase they are in and going through so i think maybe it is it is the time like uh, the presentation of uh, miss samantha like clearly laid out uh, that the funds are available internationally now we need to build those structures and as a uh, dfi or ndb like you know those developing countries have to evolve so that we give that comfort to those funds that the, the funds are going in the right directions that is being used at the same time keeping uh, that you know some of those uh, uh, like you know uh, warnings which come from IFC you know it should not be distorting something because what happens actually basically most of these projects are today commercially funded on commercial terms just because of availability of blending finance or concessional uh, finance or a high risk uh, taking uh, funds coming in should not distort between the projects. So we should be very careful as a country that how this money flows in and ultimately results in the benefit to the international community. So I think maybe the uh, roadmap ahead of us is very clear in developing these, uh, either the products or the structures or the policy enablers uh, so that we get the right kind of funding in the right kind of sectors so that ultimately as a you know uh, international community, we reach those levels of net zero positions as planned. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Rai and Karthik. Now may I invite you for your closing remarks and I will not add a word from my side. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. That's a tough, tough one. And I, I don't want to keep, keep people from the day, the evenings or the night. I know, I know it's way past our time. Uh, he's the, the, the last of the time zone. Uh, what I might do is just make it more allegorical because I think a lot of the detail has been covered. Firstly, the amount of injection of insights and ideas has been fantastic to hear from all of you. Uh, obviously, I've had the privilege of working with some of you in the gold phase. Uh, I'm Karthik Ayer, a principal advisor with uh, Climate Bonds, and I'm working in some of these thorny areas across the globe. A um, few things that jump out, so I want to call out some of the messaging, which is quite important. The first thing that made me sit up was Adama's point about 77 months. I never thought of it that way. So that, that's just the, the, the urgency to it. Uh, the second one which Samantha mentioned was the undisbursed versus the dispersed. And I think that's what we need to understand and unlock and find out and answer the question whether NDBs are the conduit to unlock that, and if so, how. And, and it's safe to say that uh, we've defined a lot of the what. I think the how is going to be the biggest challenge of how we make this happen. Uh, and, and in many ways, in my allegory, I'm going to give it uh, the example of a recipe. So we're asking a particular institution to look at reducing risk, increasing maturity, increasing language, uh, in increasing the uh, knowledge for the underlying projects, increasing pipeline. Um, at the same time, reduce the cost of capital somehow, be catalytic and make sure that the sustainability, not in terms of SDG, sustainability of being self-sufficient as a country or a capital market needs to be maintained. So that's a very tough recipe. It's like saying, 
increase the salt by just that much, reduce the spices that much. So what is the magic sauce that NAFIT and India needs is going to be a question we need to answer and implement. Uh, and obviously we all together will stand by to help NAFIT and others in that area. And I think some of the key me messages on the sector is very topical. So adaptation resilience needs to be brought into the picture in a big way. The amount of money coming into that is woefully inadequate. And if you think about specific sectors, I know Anuj touched on uh, nature-based solutions and others have talked about some tricky sectors there, and that's going to just increase over time. Uh, and I think in the finance and common uh, communique in the end, we even talked about sports and cultural activities and linking them to SDGs. So when you think about that, and if you think about other pandemics and other things that come into picture, we need to be very flexible, but at the same time, see how we can leverage uh, private sector capital and make this happen. So. Let me pause there. Uh, there's a big list there, but I think hopefully allegorically at least I've covered the challenge uh, and hopefully we'll work together to make it happen. Uh, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Back to uh, thank you so much, Karthik. I do have the last uh, things to say and thank uh, all the team members from ODI and Octus and Climate Bonds Initiative for putting this together, both uh, technically as well as uh, logistically. So thanks, a big shout out to everyone. Thank you to all the speakers. I think this is a conversation that needs to be had and that needs to be now pursued in more depth, in more granularity, in better specificity. Uh, also, just to share with everyone that uh, within this group, at least there are three organizations which have come together to uh, you know, support both narrative building, consensus building, but also tools, you know, bring tools, bring that knowledge, bring that experience. So we are very happy to be supporting NAFID in its uh, endeavors. And NAFID, thank you for putting the ambition. Your ambition is very, very clear. And your asks are also very practical. And I think as they are for all other banks that uh, we have heard from. So thank you so much. And thank you for your time. And uh, this uh, YouTube, uh, this video, this conversation will be available uh, between 24 hours to 48 hours on ODI YouTube channel, and we will all repost it. Please do go back to it. Thank you, everyone, for making the time, and for we are looking forward to working together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Bye. you very much.